Welcome to the Housing Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors and the Center for California Real Estate. It is a great pleasure to be here to share some information with you again. This is our, I believe, fourth episode. Fourth episode, yep, that's right. Yep, and we have talked about a lot on uh, our news releases. And in fact, we have a a new release uh, today. What what did we release today? It was on the overview of California housing market, or we we released the pending sales index report. Uh, we typically have two releases. We release our monthly sales report last month and uh, last week. I'm sorry, and we release our pending sales index report today. Now, based on our pending sales re- index report, it seems like we have some uh, pretty good news. Uh, if you take a look at our statewide pending index. This is the second month, May is the second month that we have an increase of uh, pending sales. In fact, an increase on a seasonally adjusted basis, 3.1% as compared to last year. Last month, April, we, act- we also had an increase of 4.7%. That's, that's what I meant by second consecutive month of release. Well, that's great news, especially, I think, because if you look at actual closed transactions, right, they've been um, somewhat lackluster or disappointing over the course of the last two months. So this suggests that that might be transitory as we move forward. Very true. I mean, I was a little worried. I mean, we were look, looking at some of the numbers. We were a little worried uh, because the first quarter, the first three months, we are seeing some decline in pending sales. We were a little concerned about what's going to happen in uh, April or May, and obviously, Last couple months, we have some sort of lackluster uh, sales performance. But if the uh, pending sales is an indicator of what's going on uh, in the upcoming months, I think we have a brighter outlook. Very cool. That's awesome. And how does that shake down across the state? I mean, is that something that you're seeing pretty consistent uh, regardless of where you look? Or is that something that really... um, you know, it kind of depends on, on where in the state that we're talking about that things are doing better than others. Yeah, I mean, of course, we, typically we look at the Bay Area, Southern California, and Central Valley, right? So Bay Area, as you know, we have tight inventory. So without looking at the number, if you just ask me what the Bay Area situation is, I would tell you that Bay Area actually had a pending sales number down. And in fact, if you take a look at the... Uh, non-seasonally adjusted number for pending sales, we are seeing the uh, year-to-year percent change in the Bay Area down slightly. Mm. Surprisingly, not as much as I thought, it's actually down 1.4% only, which is a good sign. Uh, If you look at the other areas, Southern California and Central Valley, they're both up modestly. Mm. 5.6% for Southern California and 3.8% 3.8% for Central Valley, which is not bad, which again suggests to me that in the upcoming months, those regions are probably going to see a little bit of uptake in sales um, as compared to the Bay Area. But it's not all bad in the Bay Area. If we break it down, we know that Bay Area has nine counties, right? Mm-hmm. If we break it down by county, one county specifically stood out. Well, let me ask you, if without any numbers, which county would you think? I mean, you know, just going off of my kind of gut instinct would say that the most expensive or the least affordable um, should have been the ones that, that did the worst, I guess. 
Well, and to my, to our surprise, this month we actually see San Francisco. Remember, San Francisco has a median of over a million dollar. Yeah. Oh, what a what a what a surprise! I guess a lot of people probably believe this is probably the time to 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 sell right now. They want to trade up or maybe down, and so many we have been seeing a little bit more listing in the San Francisco County lately, last couple months. Maybe we have some people put up their uh, listings in the market and started, you know, buying uh, a property maybe at a low end or maybe at a lower price. But surprisingly, pending sales for San Francisco County actually jumped, and the percentage jump was actually pretty surprising. It's about forty percent. Now, if you look at that number, wow. you would think, "Wow, is that a mistake? And is that an error?" And we looked at the number. Uh, part of the reason why San Francisco County might have jumped that much is because last year we actually had a dip mm-hmm. in May of uh, 2015. Typically, oh, yeah. from April to May, we should have an increase, but instead we had a drop. So that might have exaggerated the increase. So some statistical thing going on below the hood of that number maybe exaggerates that growth, but there was a, a decent pop in listings. Um, nonetheless yeah in general yes I mean of course uh, San Francisco County even though it is a it is a major metropolitan area but you have to take into account San Francisco County nevertheless is kind of small so it's subject to a little bit of volatility and uh, statistical error yeah no I'm with you I mean I think that's encouraging just from the perspective of how uh, problematic tight inventories have been and I think you know Having $1.4 million median prices is a challenge for, for any area, no doubt about it. But I think the the silver lining there is that maybe prices have grown enough to where that's actually going to entice sellers to put their homes on the market and kind of um, lock in those gains. So maybe that'll mean some more um, supply coming online to alleviate things there. Hopefully, hopefully that is the case. And we know that because of what we talked about in the past, that we are seeing increase in housing demand, right? increase in housing demand because of increase in household formation. Economy is getting better, so we're getting a little bit more people moving out of their parents' place or forming a lot, uh, households, people getting married. So we're seeing a lot, uh, a little bit more household formation in recent years. And in 2016, probably we'll see a little bit more, even more so in 2017. Uh-huh. But don't you, uh, let me ask you this. You, what do you think these household uh, demand or household formations are uh, mainly from? I know we have a lot of um, millennials, but at the same time, we talked enough about you know different generations. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about um, different ethnic groups. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I mean, you know, we hear all the time that California is becoming um, an increasingly diverse state, not just relative to the rest of the nation, where we've got a huge amount of diversity, um, but even relative to our own. You know, recent past, I think that we um, see increasing shares of the population and, you know, minority ethnic groups and things like that. So, you know, I would expect to see a lot more growth kind of on that end just as they become a bigger kind of piece of the overall pie here. Right. Indeed, that is the case. You know, we know that Hispanic population, Asian population have increased. And of course, Hispanic population in California specifically, they have grown quite a bit. Just to throw a few numbers out. At the national level, if you take a look at minority minority group, if you look at the uh, number of um, minority home buyers, for example, has grown from at the I'm sorry at the uh, state level uh, for California in 1995, only 32 percent of the uh, home buyers were from the minority group. Mm-hmm. Fast forward 20 years, 2015. 
that group has grown, home buyers uh, of minority group has grown to 44%. Wow. So it did jump you know, by about 12%, even though it's in a 20 year time frame. But at the same time, of course, you mentioned earlier, population has grown quite a bit for the uh, uh, Latino group and for the uh, Asian group. So it's not a very, it's not a surprise surprise. In terms of home ownership, I only have the national numbers here. In terms of the home ownership rate, uh, for the overall home ownership rate from 1990 to, tw to uh, 2010, it has it actually didn't change that much. Uh, for all homeowners, uh, about 65.3 percent of um, the population are homeowners in 1990. Fast forward to 2010, it's 65.1 percent. So didn't really change that much. But uh, if you look at Hispanic, it actually inched up a little bit from. 43.3% to 47.3%. But if you take a look at that comparison, you know that there is a difference. Especially when you put in the white population, white households, the home ownership rate was 70.1 uh, in 1990 and 72.2 in 2010. So you see there's a big difference between the home ownership rate and the Hispanic group as well uh, as compared to the uh, white population. So even though there's been some progress, I guess, which is what you're pointing out, that we have you know, seen a, a bigger chunk of the Hispanic population get into uh, the buying market, and we've seen home ownership rate rise, um, there's still a persistent gap. And I think that's important to point out because that's something that's that's near and dear to my heart. And I think that you know, it's not only important for our members, um, because, you know, that's fewer folks who may be out there, um, you know, as, as business opportunities, doing the transactions and things that, that our realtors might be able to work with. But I think even more fundamentally, just from a pure economic standpoint, is that, you know, home ownership is just a really... Um, you know, one of the only key ways I think that, that households that don't have any inherited wealth to fall back on can really kind of start to accumulate wealth. I mean, there was a really good article in the New York Times recently that talked about how home ownership is still, you know, even after accounting for things like the housing collapse and the Great Recession, um, an effective means of accumulating wealth. And I think that uh, what you're alluding to is just that, you know, even though we've seen some kind of progress in terms of minority home ownership and, and minority home buyers, um, there's that kind of persistent gap. And I think it's worth kind of spending a little bit of time on that, if you'll permit me. <laughs> sure, sure. Now, um, let me throw you a couple more numbers before I let you go into a little bit more detail. Sure. Now, um, as you said, you know there is still a lot of room to grow. And one of the things that I want to point out is if you take a look at, yeah, we might have some improvement, slight improvement in home ownership, but if you take a look at um, the Hispanic population's home ownership rate, um, you might think, well, yeah, it improved a little bit, but if you take a look at the uh, money that they put down as down payment and how much they actually pay and the percent uh, to, um, to the uh, home value, uh, just let me just throw you some numbers. The uh, median down payment for Hispanic homeowner, home buyers is about 14000 as compared to all buyers, they put down about 75000 Oh, wow. Yeah, of course, there is some difference because of the home value, but if you look at the uh, percent to uh, total price or the uh, share, uh, the uh, down payment in terms of percentage, Hispanic populations or Hispanic home buyers only put down 5%. Hmm. And a typical home buyers, uh, without uh, looking at their uh, ethnic background, they put down 20%, or 19.6%. 
So there is such there is definitely a big difference. Mm. It also suggests to us that maybe a lot of uh, Hispanic home buyers rely on FHA loans, gotcha, rather than you know the typical. Uh, conforming loan. Yeah, and maybe that's one of the reasons why we have seen, uh, you know, the amount of progress perhaps that we have seen is that uh, there are these kind of new products out there in terms of helping folks get on that that income ladder without uh, such a significant amount of kind of upfront down. That's true. That's true. So what else do you have that suggests to tell me whether there is a progress or whether we need to do more work. Sure, and you know I'm not one to to discount the progress that's been made. I'm I'm very um, encouraged by the fact that we see more uh, Black, Hispanic, and Asian home buyers out in the market uh, relative to where we were several decades ago. Uh, but I think it's it's important to not only compare them to you know the the population at large or other ethnic groups like whites or Asians, uh, where you noted that there is a you know a persistent gap between home ownership rates and 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 ethnicity. But I think even more importantly is is you know relative to yourself, rel, you know let alone relative to another race. And what I mean by that is that um, you know we've seen increasing shares of the population or in these kind of minority. Uh, demographics and and even though we've made progress in terms of the real estate market the progress that we've seen on the housing front hasn't been proportionate to what we've seen just in terms of the overall growth in the demographic at large and so you know when you think about things like um home ownership and buying and things like that well yes we've seen that 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 share of home sales that go to Hispanics have risen. In fact, I think um, you mentioned by 2010, it was somewhere in the 40% range uh-huh. where minorities were buying you know, over 40% of the homes. And I think in the most recent data that I've seen, um, you know, Hispanics, as an example, were 22% of all transactions in 2014 all by themselves. And you add in Asians, which were about 18.3%, and about 3% of which were black, then we're well ahead of even that 40% number that you quoted okay. back in 2010. But, you know, which is great. But the catch is that the shares of population for those folks has continued to increase as well. So take Hispanics Uh, as a perfect example where, yes, they've grown to about 22% of all transactions, but they're also almost 40% of our overall population base. And so when you think about it from that standpoint, yes, we've grown the number of Hispanic homeowners, but we also just have a lot more Hispanic residents in California such that, um, you know, if you look at just kind of where we should be, we're actually continuing to fall farther and farther behind. In fact, if you look at uh, the share of that population base and you subtract off the share of, of all transactions that they are, in fact, in 2014, there was about a 16 percentage point uh, gap, right? So wow. even though they were almost 40% of our population base, you know, all things being equal with other ethnicities, you'd expect them to be 40% or so, give or take, of those transactions. Right, right. They were only half that at 20% of the transactions. And so even though it's a a larger number of Hispanic homeowners, um, you know, in terms of just uh, keeping pace, we're actually even falling behind in terms of, of participating more actively in the housing market. And so great progress, but I think there's still a lot of challenges that we need to face as well. Wow. So, you know, we can probably say, based on the numbers that you suggested, that maybe home ownership rate might not have improved in a, in you know the Hispanic population group. That's exactly right, and perhaps that's a better way to say it is that um, even though we have you know a larger number of Hispanic homeowners, 
we're not seeing increases in the home ownership rate for Hispanics, which means that their population mm-hmm. base is growing even faster than that. And so not really um, proportionate progress. Progress in terms of absolute numbers, but not in terms of percentages and keeping pace with where we should be. Got it. So, I mean, I think some has to do with, you know, of course, increase in home prices. Um, can't really say too much about rates because rates have been staying at a very low level. But I'm sure it has a lot to do with uh, down payment too, accumulation of wealth, right? Yeah, I think down payment, income are are big factors, right? I mean, if you look at how income is distributed across ethnic groups, you see a lot of these same uh, persistent gaps that you see when we look at things like home ownership, right? Where mm-hmm. uh, white and Asian incomes tend to be on average a lot higher than what you see in black and Hispanic incomes. But you know, I think that it's also critical to point out that that's not the whole story. Um, in fact, that was my initial reaction to some of these stats where uh-huh. we talk about persistent ethnic gaps in home ownership um, is that, yeah, you know, these folks don't tend to make as much money on average. So, of course, they're not able to participate as fully in the housing market. Uh, but just a test that actually went out and ran some numbers. And, and it's really interesting when you look at even um, ethnic groups, if you limit everything to people making over $100,000, right? So you take out okay. that kind of income disparity. And so we're only looking at folks uh, across ethnicities that, that are really making what we would call, quote unquote, high income. And even there, we see these persistent gaps. So again, going back to 14, 2014, which is the most recent data I have available, if you look at home ownership rates across ethnicities for people making over $100,000 a year, uh, you still see about 77% home ownership for whites, 75% home ownership for Asian, black and Hispanic are 65 and 69% respectively. So income cannot be the whole story. If it was just Got an it. income story, once you filtered out those high income folks, you'd expect to see everything kind of converge on one home ownership number. In fact, that's not the case. And, and to me, that suggests that it is worthwhile to focus on some policies that might boost home ownership like FHA uh, that can help folks kind of in that black and Hispanic category in particular get the foot on that property ladder and start accumulating that wealth. That's great. Well, that's great to know. I think uh, CAR is doing uh, uh, some work in the uh, Latino initiatives. We're doing some work on the policy front. So hopefully it will get us closer to where we want to be. And uh, maybe not next year, but maybe in the next few years we can make some improvement. Yeah, I think it's got to remain uh, an area that we continue to focus on because it's just so critically important, not just for this generation, but I think for our entire state's economy moving forward. Cool. Well, I guess we just have to keep on moving and keep on uh, doing some additional work. Now, shifting gear a little bit, um, well, this year is a, an election year, and uh, we know that we have some debates uh, for the last few months already. I'm not going to go into the specific on candidate and and, and uh, thank you the actual elections. Uh, we want to. That's another discussion, maybe an hour discussions, you know, from someone else, not from us. Um, but we want to talk about economics. Typically, in an election year, do we see any kind of change from uh, non-election years? I know you have done some studies. In fact, I think you have uh, put together a release. Yep, we have actually a press release up on our site right now that you can go to at car.org. And there's a blog as well that kind of fleshes out some of those ideas. But bottom line is, you know, even though we hear a lot about how uh, presidential elections and election cycles 
but in general, but more particularly presidential election cycles, have you know these kind of persistent negative impacts on the housing market. They inject a lot of uncertainty in things, and that's the story at least. But um, when you actually dig into the data, there's just not much evidence there to substantiate that claim. In fact, uh, if you look at what happens with home sales growth in an election year versus a non-election year, it's really indistinguishable from what you see um, any other any other time of year or any other non-election cycle and so um, as much as as that makes for juicy sound bites <laughs> and and media clips I think that you know there's not a lot of substance to those claims in fact if you look at um, you know the last three months of the year that was pretty much the only consistent result that I could find where um, you know typically in a non-election year the last three months of any calendar year tend to be um, you know, more or less the worst months of the year from home sales standpoint. Not a lot of folks going out and buying in October and November and December through the holiday season. But during an election year, you've seen consistently positive growth over the course of the last five presidential elections where really? you kind of get through that election. And it seems like for whatever reason, I don't know if that's the uncertainty has gone or what those underlying causes are, uh, but that folks seem like they're kind of in a mode of getting back to business. And so perhaps that's good news for the end of this year that we might see that little post-election cycle bump. Well, that's good. I mean, okay, like I said, you know, the first quarter may not be great so far, but at least we can look forward to the last quarter, right? Yep, pending sales are up, and we might get that post-election pop. So fingers <laughs> crossed for, for good things to come. Now, one more thing. I know we talked about sales. What about price? Price, interestingly enough, we see the exact same thing. Pretty indistinguishable throughout the course of the year, but then you get this little post-election acceleration in price growth, um, and that's been something that we've seen pretty consistently over the course of the last five or six uh, election cycles. In fact, if you look at um, the, the average non-election year growth at the end of the year, we're looking at something on the order of, I think, uh, two or three percent per year uh, in in prices and actually on a year-over-year -year basis in non-election years, we're talking about negative growth. But um, over the last five election cycles, we've averaged five and a half to 6% growth. Um, so, you know, possibly see that pop not only to sales, but that extra demand might actually filter through to better numbers on the price side. Okay, well, that's, that's kind of good because our original prediction is, our forecast suggests you know, a 5%, maybe I have to make some adjustment because of what you just said. Maybe I have to add another percent to it or not. Possibly, <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, it's not a sure thing. I think that, you know, the, the biggest takeaway that I can get from this analysis of the election cycle is that um, it's not the election that's driving the housing market. It's the economy at large. Are people having jobs? Are rates affordable? Do they have access to credit? And so I think those are the things to keep an eye on. And, and any pop that we get because of the election, that'll just be a bonus. That's great. Well, that's good to know. Of course, you know, all we said about is based on just historical records. We'll find out uh, what's going on later this year, and um, you never know. I mean, we have a very interesting election year so far. I'm sure it's going to get more interesting. Yep, six months from now, we'll know either way. So Great. Well, that, that should wrap up the uh, today's episode, and we will have more to cover next week. And until then, thank you for tuning in again. Thanks, everyone. 